Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. I'm Kathy Barron. My guest, Ash Ambergé, needs no introduction, but because this is a podcast, I guess I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Insert badass before each of these. Ash is an internet entrepreneur, one of the very first, creative writer, speaker, and advocate for women being brave and doing disobedient things with their careers and their lives. She doesn't put up with shit, loves vodka, and is really kind of sweary. She's the genius behind the Middle Finger Project, her hallmark lifestyle blog. Her new book, The Middle Finger Project, Trash Your Imposter Syndrome and Live the Unfuckwithable Life You Deserve, is out today. Ash, welcome to Women Who Sarcast, and congrats on your book. Woo! Yeah, there was no chance of not swearing, was there? I mean, it's in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once you start with a title like that, it's, you know, pretty much downhill from there. It's true. It's totally downhill from here. At this very moment, it's only going to go downhill. So I hope everyone ha- is buckled up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So first of all, I have to say I knew you when. And, you did. I, I slept in your home. You did many, many years ago. And I'm still grateful for that, by the way. And that was a, a great time. That definitely <laughs> so taught good. me a lot about myself. We won't go into detail, but you know. It was we had probably a, a life-changing moment for me. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, I was with two other bloggers at the time, and we were doing this cross-country road trip, and we were staying with readers. And Kathy was like, all right, let's do it. So we drove to her house, <laughs> and, and we really just hung out for a couple of days, right? I mean, it was great. I think it ended up being a week because you're like, after two days, you're like, so um, is it possible that we can stay a few more days? Because wow. I think your San Francisco or whatever next stop you had was delayed or something. So you ended up staying there a whole week. That's ballsy of, of us to ask. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, you know, I had more guts when I was in my early 20s. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does kind of wane as you get older. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit more polite now. I would be mortified to ask that of you. I would probably just go to a hotel. <laughs> but then again, I don't know that we had that much money to be spending well, on hotel yeah, time. Exactly, exactly. So as far as your book, I love that you stated that it isn't intended to be a book about business, but about the lessons you've learned about confidence, choice, strength, independence, um, and from doing business as an unconventional businesswoman. So how would you describe your book in three words? Mm. I was going to say not safe for work, and then I was like, that's four. Uh entertaining honest and I want I want to say money that sounds bizarre but money is an important theme here in teaching women how to feel confident going and getting own mm-hmm. and so I feel like it's a big theme for me because I, I know that there's a lot of self-help books a lot of memoirs that talk a lot about different topics, but don't give a lot of practical pieces of advice. And a lot of the things we do talk about in there come back to money and how to make it taking whatever skill or talent you've got and to, and turning around and selling that to someone. So I, I'm going to go with money, Kath. All right. Is that your final answer? Yes. Money. <laughs> okay. Entertaining money. <laughs> money for entertaining. It kind of, you know, it's interchangeable, I'm sure. 
<laughs> so what are the most ludicrous reasons you've heard from women that can't go after what they want? The most ludicrous by far is absolutely that my spouse won't let me. Mm. That one really, really chaps my ass when I hear it. I think it's unfortunate. I think it's important to have discussions with your spouse, but to get to the point where you're not allowed to pursue a dream that you want to pursue, I think is is really problematic. Yeah. But worse than that, I think, is actually when you have the freedom to do what you want and you don't because of the inner dialogue that's going on in your own head and so many reasons why you shouldn't. Who am I to do X? Mm -hmm. There are so many photographers or writers or artists or creatives out there. So I'm never, I'm never going to get ahead or, um, you know, I don't know enough yet, or maybe I should wait until it's a better time. Maybe I should just stay and do what I'm doing right now. I should be grateful. That to me is just such a, such one of the most ludicrous pieces of advice ever that we give one another is you should be grateful. You have a job, right? Yeah. It's a really dangerous piece of advice and women take it and they listen to it and they will absolutely feel like they need to stay in prison in this role that yes, on the surface is, is lovely. I mean, right? Like teachers come to mind. I talked to a lot of teachers who they've studied, they have a very stable position. They're earning decent money. They have a very decent lifestyle and everyone tells them you should be grateful. You've got benefits. How could you give that up? And so that guilt factor, that to me is so ludicrous because there's so much you can do in life and you can always go back if it doesn't work out, but go forward, focus on that. How do you tap into your own creativity? Like what are the ways that you, like, I'm sure you have off days just like anybody else, as far as your creativity, how do you kind of keep it going? And you know, if it kind of goes stale for a while, how do you bring it back? Well, drinking is always useful. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I actually don't get better with drinking. Uh, maybe, maybe like a glass or two, but after that, it's really not. Uh, I, I do love travel. I think that's huge. I think travel is so important just to get inside of a new context, but that's not always a luxury that everyone has at the drop of a hat. So what I really like to do, I open up Caitlin Moran. She's one of my favorite authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe Bill Bryson. Somebody who is funny and somebody who's also very articulate and has great ideas. I love Caitlin for that reason in particular because reading her stuff makes me feel so excited about my own art and being creative that way and having the courage to take risks. So it puts me in the mood when I start doing that. I will always look for some kind of source of inspiration like that. Yeah, I think that's good as far as finding, I mean, a lot of people don't know what their passion is. And don't think they're creative, but everybody's creative. Everybody has a passion of some sort. And I think that people think it has to be this huge, you know, uh, magnificent kind of thing when, you know, if you're passionate about like, you know, stamping things to paper (laughs) or, you know, collecting stickers or whatever it is. Or, you know, gum off the underneath the desk, you know, yes. uh, it doesn't matter in what scale it is. If it's something that you're passionate about, you should just go for it. So what yeah. advice do you have for people that are like, well, you know, I just like to collect gum off the you know bottom of shoes. What should I do with that? 
Well, first of all, yes, if you have some kind of a passion, good on you. I do hear from women a lot, especially women, that are kind of like, I want to do something else, but I don't know what. And so that's that's a hard thing because it's like, dude, you're not going to find your passion in your living room. It's not going to be there. Right. You got to get out. You got to just do stuff. Get a little crazy. But if you do have something you're passionate about and you're kind of like, meh, I mean, it would be too much work or I just don't know how to really turn that into money, which seems to be the the case more often or not. Um, I like to think about Google. I <laughs> Google is a really important thing to understand. So many of us are using the internet every day to communicate Mm -hmm. with our friends, but not enough of us are using the internet to create with. And when you think about Google, you understand that the landscape has changed dramatically. The way we work in the world has changed dramatically because before you, let's say, you were a stamp collector, right? Or And let's say you wanted to make these like really unique, cute little, ah, I got a perfect example. The other day I saw these middle finger coins. Nice. <laughs> and I was so excited to see them. And so some guy is stamping these coins in his house and selling them. And originally, if you were going to do something like that, you would be tasked with taking your creation and going outside and finding people somewhere, some way to buy these things. That's the only way it would have worked. You would have had to go and that's, that, you know, that's traditional marketing, traditional advertising. Mm-hmm. One of those two things or word of mouth is the only way that they're getting sold. That does not apply anymore because now we've got Google. So now you've got millions and millions and millions of people around the world at any given time who are typing into that magical little box Middle finger coins, <laughs> right? Yeah. Now they are looking for you. Right. An incredible about face in terms of the way that commerce works. So once you understand that, it becomes kind of like uh, you're really just leaving money on the table. Every time you think about somebody Googling middle finger coin, and you're not being there to sell them a middle finger coin, you've just lost money. That breaks my heart. doesn't matter what it is that you want to do. There's someone searching for it mm-hmm. online and try to use those Google tools and go look up your thing. You will be surprised how many people are performing that same search. No, that's a good idea. And it, it, it is, I mean, the internet is huge and you don't need a brick and mortar anymore. You can just set up shop with a website and you're good to go. And so it's so much easier now than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, right. I think that's where we got this idea that small business, setting up your own business was a risky thing to do. It got a bad rap back in the day because it was riskier. You had to have a lot more money to you know, lease a space, buy inventory, have signage created, do marketing. All of that stuff was this crazy overhead that you had to have in place first before you could even try anything. Now it's as simple as 10 bucks, like get 10 bucks. You can make a website and now you've got that storefront. You've got everything that you need right there. You've, even if you do want to sell some kind of a physical product, you've got a million and two ways that you can actually have another company, you know, ship them for you, print your designs on them, even take your product and ship on your behalf, whatever it is. It's so almost foolproof (laughs) these days that you, you can't not. 
Now, I know you're all about new thought and woo-woo things, right? Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, yeah, someone said to me the other day, like, joking. She said, well, what page is the guided meditations on? And I was like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <clears throat> if you know me, you know I am the least woo-woo person on the planet. <laughs> well, that'll be your second edition. You'll in- input the, med- the uh, guided meditations on there. <laughs> Oh, maybe my second book should just be called The Least Woo-Woo Person on the Planet. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> or Unfuckwithable Mindful Meditations. How about that? How to make it in this life when you are not doing yoga. <laughs> <laughs> Success stories from beyond the mat. <laughs> so out of these, what are your most favorite sayings? Okay, I'm going to list a few and tell me which one is your favorite. Okay. Uh, sticking it out, making the best of it, focusing on the good, God's will, <laughs> chalk things up to the universe, Mercury's in retrograde, <laughs> everything happens for a reason, Ooh. and the one that I know is your favorite, if it's meant to be. Okay, so three of those kind of roll into one. If it's meant to be God's will and everything happens for a reason. <laughs> everything happens for a reason, though, is my absolute favorite out of all of those. <laughs> what drives because... you crazy about all these things? Oh, Kath. I mean, when someone says that to me, first of all, it, it removes my own personal agency. And I don't like that. I feel like you are now telling me that it's outside of my control and it's not. Uh, second of all, you're taking away my credit if I have done something good. Uh, that happened because of me, because I was there every day showing up and making it happen. It did not happen because everything happens for a reason. <laughs> no, the reason is me. <laughs> right. Um, but more than that, I think it's just it's just becomes blurry, the line between, you know, what things are in your control and what things are out of your control and should you take the personal agency that you need to be taking or just let things fall into place? And I think a lot of people struggle with that too. I don't think they think they have enough personal agency or any really. And so it ends up spiraling into uh, apathy. And that's that sucks. So many people are so – they have so much potential and they're so capable of so many things, but they don't think they are. And really, what you believe about yourself will either save your life or murder you in the end, effectively. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, I think, you know, I'm guilty. I have said those things before. Um, because I think there are certain things you don't have control over. I mean, maybe. Well, death. Well, sure. But I mean, you as long as you're making some kind of action or doing some kind of thing to move forward and to do what you want to do, then I mean, sometimes you just have to sit with things sometimes. You know, you can't I don't think you can force things to happen. And I guess maybe that's where I come from as far as, you know, things happening. Do you agree or, or I mean, you're kind of looking at me like I'm thinking you half agree. <laughs> I'm thinking that through because I, I think for if I could edit that phrase, I would just say everything happens, period. I don't think there's always a reason. I think, yes, everything everything happens and it will happen eventually. And sometimes you can't control it. 
I think there's value in making intelligent decisions and sitting with whatever needs to be sat with. But I think those are two different things. I think talking to someone who really needs to take the risk and take the leap and it's time Mm -hmm. is one thing versus someone who has just had something uh, really, I mean, like, you know, cancer, a death in the family, something really out of their control and have to process that. And what do you do with that? I think there's a little bit different, although I will say I also recognize that as someone who has forever identified as being a scrappy person, once you make that such a core fundamental part of your identity, mm-hmm. uh, it's easy to also fall into the trap of needing things to be hard and needing things to you, you like forcing yourself onto things because that's all you know and that's all the only way you've ever experienced success as well as as being this this force right. so i think I, I could see the other side of it too just the same way yeah well and i think it's all individual like you said if you're if you're already a core part of yourself is scrappiness then that's what you know and and if you're not, then, you know, people need to hang out with you more so they can become more scrappy. Yeah. I, you know, I think that there's the book. The book was written for women who perhaps don't self-identify with being scrappy and need a little bit of an ass kick to say, listen, like here's here's what you can do. Like you have so many options available to you right now. It's insane. Um, but on the same token... Right, I think that there is a danger, and I do write about that in the book. Once you, once you are successful, quote unquote, and once you've now gone forth, there is the danger of having too much ambition and kind of the dark side of ambition. Mm-hmm. And I think that it also goes with being a little bit too scrappy because now it's like, okay, well, it doesn't have to be this hard, and it's it's just as valuable if you get there and it was easy. Uh, something I struggle with still to this day is hiring people to do stuff that that they really need to be hired for because then all of a sudden it's just like almost too easy. Right. <laughs> I need to do it myself. I, you know, I need to have that personal stamp on it. And that's the trap too. Yeah, totally. It totally is. So with that said, you talk about the imposter syndrome. And I think that kind of goes along with what we were just talking about. What is it and how can someone overcome it? Mm, Yeah, everyone feels imposter syndrome when you are doing anything new at all. And it's that sense that you really don't belong there. You're not good enough to be there. You didn't earn it. And everyone else knows more than you. And you're just kind of hiding behind the scenes there, uh, waiting almost for someone to call you out. And, and say, you know what, you're, you're out. Uh, when in reality, most people are very experienced and they actually are phenomenal at what they do. But there's just that all that always feeling that you are somehow a fraud. And it's just this underlying, you know, low level feeling that a lot of people experience day in and day out. And that's normal. But I think it's it's dangerous when People let that feeling prevent them from doing things that would be phenomenal in life. So to answer the second part of that, how do you get over it? 
the imposter thing, I think there's two forms. I think the first one is a trickier form because it's important to ask yourself if the things you're doing every day, the work you're doing in particular, do you actually enjoy it? Mm -hmm. Because I think so much of the fake feeling comes from actually every day living your life faking the enjoyment. If you are working in a job where, you know, you, you don't like love it, but hey, you know, you were trained as an accountant, so it makes sense to do this work. I think something can make sense and still make you miserable. And so every day you might not be, you're not, you're not an imposter because you actually know what you're doing. You are an accountant. You know how to do this stuff, but you still feel kind of like one because every day you're walking into the office faking to everyone around you, your clients, your boss, everyone that you actually want to be there. So <laughs> that's worth saying. Don't get confused. Yeah. But then there's the other imposter syndrome where it's like, okay, I'm doing these big things. You know, I'm going on TV or I'm doing this thing and oh my God, uh, did I just kind of sneak in here? Are they going to regret hiring me or letting me do this thing? What if everyone finds out that I'm not as good as they thought I was? That's the piece where most of us really do struggle. And for that, um, I like to do a couple of different things, but it's so important to take evidence on yourself. No one can see themselves objectively ever. It's always subjective and other people see you differently. They see your talents and your skills differently than you do. So I like to imagine that I, if, if I was going to court, legit, <laughs> going to court and there's a judge there and the judge is like, okay, you know, is Ash, is she good enough to be in this room right now? Well, I might sit there and make arguments as to why I'm not, because that's what we do to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're a little nuts. Yeah. I, well, I, you know, well, I haven't been doing this for 50 years and therefore I'm not qualified. Uh, or I haven't, you know, made $3 million yet doing this thing. So I'm not qualified. I'm going to be making arguments against myself. And then if you were to look at the written evidence of every single email that someone's ever emailed you with a compliment in it or things that sometimes, you know, if you write down nice things people say about you, it sounds a little wonky, but really get in the habit of writing down ways that you were helpful today, whatever. You put this stack of evidence on the other side as the, kind of like the defendant and the judge is going to look at the evidence and decide absolutely in the, in the favor of the evidence that you are qualified. So having that written down is very useful because it's a bit more objective to help you see yourself better than you can actually see yourself. Right. And that is so true because how you see yourself is usually totally opposite of how people see you. I mean, that's with everything. I think that's with just in life in general because we are so critical of ourselves and so hard on ourselves that if we don't feel like with a conversation like if you have a conversation with someone and you walk away from there like really shitty and then the next thing you know they're telling you how great of a conversation they had with you it's like <laughs> wait was i in the same converse was i in the same room did we have the same conversation oh and we all do it we all think those things when we walk away from any conversation too it's another important thing to remember we're all humans and we're actually all thinking the same things just some people are better at hiding it than others. Right. Uh, yeah. And even even just the other day, we were just talking about how I recorded the audiobook, right, for the Middle Finger Project. 
And I know when I listen to the clip, that's the very first chapter, the very first thing I recorded, I know that I can hear a very small little, like my nerves coming out a little bit here and there. I know my voice enough to know mm-hmm. that uh, in a couple places I sound nervous. Like my heart was racing. I was definitely nervous. And then someone else listens to that and they're like, you didn't sound nervous at all. You sound awesome. You don't even sound like you're reading, right? All of those things. And we just see ourselves differently. So it's helpful to remember that sometimes what you're thinking about yourself is a total lie. Right. <laughs> and it usually and it- is. You've got the book earmarked. How adorable are you? It's my little orange tabs. You Love know, it. When you get to be my age, you got to do things to help you remember. Oh, trust me. I put everything <laughs> in my Apple reminders. I don't live without it. I have lists upon lists upon lists. I even write down like what I'm doing today. Step one, two, three. <laughs> Step one. <laughs> Shower. Get out of bed. Put your foot on the ground. It's really pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to read this. It's about uh, radical self-reliance. And it says, the good news is this. Radical self-reliance is not born from ease. It's born from the extremes. And being forced to your own edges and to see just how fast you can go is an opportunity. Whether you've tossed your life into the gutter to start again or you've found yourself in the gutter by accident, Not having anything left can be the best thing that ever happened to you. And then you wanted to talk about how it's terrifying at first, but nothing, you know, matters beyond what you need to do to survive. And then the last line, it says, when you are without, you become hyper-focused and alert. You only have one duty now, and that is to yourself. Oh, yeah. What a luxury. I know. Isn't that awesome? It seems as if we need to like strip away all that isn't us to get to the core of who we truly are. And it seems like sometimes you have to go to that extreme to losing everything and not having anything to either fall back on or to worry about. Yes, I love I love a good desperate moment. (laughs) I love them. I love them. I think that when you understand that creativity is really a form of currency and your ideas are as well, it, it changes things for you because I, I mean, of course we can all picture the person who's desperate and who is like robbing homes because they're that desperate. But I Mm -hmm. think that that's because they don't see really what, opportunities are out there for anybody. It doesn't matter who you are. So when you understand that and you get desperate, it changes because now all the imposter syndrome doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the dreams zappers telling you, you know, that something's a good idea or a bad idea. doesn't matter whether or not you should or shouldn't be grateful, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. Right. God's will doesn't matter anymore, does it? <laughs> <laughs> None of it matters, but but you get having somewhere to sleep tonight and tomorrow and the next night, and that's scary, but it's also so powerful because now you like anyone texting you their bullshit nonsense in Facebook or whatever. How's your day going, Ash? Like blah blah blah. Somebody you haven't talked to in twenty years. That stuff is nice, but 
if you let yourself, I mean, you could just spend days upon days doing nothing but responding to other people's needs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we do. It's a great form of procrastination, especially when you've got the internet, you've got TV, and you've got a million and one ways that you can entertain and distract yourself. It only is when you become very desperate that you're going to have enough willpower to say, okay, nope, not listening to that message. This message doesn't matter. None of it matters. You're not going to open them. You're not going to be sitting around, you know, homeless on the side of the street texting back, you know, Kelly Jones from fourth grade. (laughs) The only person you get to focus on now is you. And that is awesome. It's a gift in disguise. Totally. You mentioned dream zappers. Can you elaborate on that and what they are and how you can avoid them? Those guys. Because they suck ass. (laughs) We need a Men in Black Dream Zappers edition. (laughs) (laughs) We need the little flashlight that they flash into your eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) So you forget. Totally. Two kinds of Dream Zappers. The ones that are well-meaning and the ones who are not... I think we all know the ones who are well-meeting. They're your family, your spouse, your best friend who's second-guessing your every move, telling you that, you know what, Um, you should probably stick it out. And, you know, I don't think you should quit your job to launch your bookstore or whatever it is that you want to do. Everyone's going to have an opinion about it. That is something you can't avoid. And everyone in the well-meaning category, at least, does mean well for you. But sometimes what happens unconsciously is that when you tell someone else your aspirations to change your life and to do something different, what you're indirectly saying to them is that I don't think you are doing enough And I don't want to live your version of life. So kind of by challenging challenging the status quo, you're challenging them indirectly. So I think that's where a lot of the tension ends up coming from. They might not even know that, but they're feeling a little offended. Like, well, who does she think she is? That comes through everyone's mind. And a lot of people get hammered with that one. Yeah. And then you've got the other dream zappers who are frenemies. They're the folks who are uh, making passive aggressive comments at you because they want to bring you down a notch or maybe 10. Uh, And that also applies to them too. Anything that you say or do uh, is a direct threat and challenge to them. And sometimes they can be really mean about it. I remember being younger. I remember starting to write on the internet. I remember blogging. And I remember my friends in real life just like had a field day with it. Every time I'd see them, it was some kind of little smart ass comment about, well, how's your blog? And <laughs> Ooh, are you making millions yet? And, uh, you know, one girl said to me in her kitchen, I will never forget. She said to me in a serious voice, she was like, I, I just, I seriously, I, I, can't, I don't understand why anyone reads your blog. It's also common sense. Maybe I should start a blog, she goes. And I'm like, that is so offensive. I'm working very hard to create something that matters to me. Yeah. And I will say now, you know, 10 years later, those same people are the ones who want to know how I did what I did. So, of course. Well, and then, you know, then you talk about in your book about what separates the victims from the victors. 
And, you know, I feel like people get caught up in getting things right, quote unquote, right, and then end up not doing it at all. You got to go into like staying small. Can you kind of talk about that as far as the what separates the victims from the victors and staying small or starting small? Yeah, I, I mean... First of all, no matter what you do next, even if you did have it perfect, which you won't, but even if you did hypothetically have it perfect, the crazy thing is the next week, you're still going to change it anyway. You're still going to iterate forward because that's what we do. I've done things that I thought were very well done, but then later either something else changes or I have a new idea or something impacts my work in some way and I'm pushing the project forward. I'm changing it no matter what. So you might as well launch earlier as long as it's still serving the people you're trying to serve in some way, launch earlier and then keep iterating and get better and get better and get better as you go. But I think a lot of the imposter syndrome thing too, it's not about doing the wrong thing. Sometimes it's just about having the wrong expectations about doing it. So I would say aim for B plus <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, iterate as you go. And I also think that it's so important to, you know, the victim and the victor piece of that. So many of the decisions we make every day mm -hmm. are based on logic we're like, okay, well, listen, I'm not going to start that business right now because I'm not sure if I'm ready or because I don't really know if it's a good idea or because, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. And I think the people who are the victors in the end end up flipping the script a little bit and just replacing that one word because – with the word despite. I don't know if this is going to work out, but I'm going to do it despite. <laughs> right. And I don't know if this is a good idea, but I'm going to try it despite not knowing. Yeah. Uh, that one little switch, it's a small little switch, but it is the difference between letting what happens to you in the world eat you alive and taking those things and making something from them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think perfectionism gets in the way. And, you know, I, hi, my name is Kathy. I'm a perfectionist. You know, <laughs> I totally am guilty of that. And that comes up a lot in my creative projects. It's like I haven't even finished half of what I've started because it's not perfect or it's not right. I'm not doing, I want to do it the right way. And you bring up, one of your chapters in the book is called Perfectionism is an Occupational Hazard. And I was cracking up because you <laughs> you start the chapter with talking about the reality show, The Ice Road Trucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. The title of the chapter is Perfectionism <laughs> is an Occupational Hazard. And then you talk about the Ice Road Trucker reality show. And I have watched that show. It's pretty freaking insane. It's like, it's like you have to go across this iced... It's basically like you said in the book. It's a it's a lake that's iced over, and there's like these hundred thousand million pound tr ton trucks driving over them. And if you if you've ever grown up in a snowy wintry area like I like you and I have, you know that any heavy anything on a iced lake is just not good. You've seen pictures of cars that have fallen into the lake, 
even though it's, you know, they go ice fishing, for God's sakes. They put these shanties out on the lake. They start fires on the on the lake. It's like, how much logic does that make? You start a fire on the lake. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like these drivers, like, you can't drive fast either on these roads that these ice truckers are driving on. It's like I would haul ass just to get off that freaking thing as fast as possible. But you can't because there's all, you know, <laughs> the science and the physics and whatever uh, involved in that whole process. But you you said one thing that hit me in my professionistic solar plexus, and it was ambition requires a great deal of effort, but it also requires a great deal of restraint. You have to know when to pump the brakes just as much as you do the gas. Geez, do you know I didn't even realize I was making that connection with that language in particular and then also introducing the <laughs> chapter with the with the ice road truckers, right, because they really do have a very real occupational hazard that is, you know, mess that one up and you're dead. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, but, but the same for us, right? We've got perfectionism as this occupational hazard that – Nobody recognizes as being lethal, but absolutely can be lethal to your dreams, lethal to your health, <laughs> lethal to everything that comes next. Because the perfectionism piece, you you don't see it, right? You don't even see it half the time. Like no, you, you don't. don't. Yeah. Um, but also, the more you start taking risks and the more you keep going with things and you discover that it actually works, which it will if you actually just do, you know, do the actions, you don't even have to think about it. Like, don't even think about it anymore. Like, whether it's good, it's going to work out or not, just do the actions and it's going to work. It just will. That is the, the physics of our world. But when you start doing that and you discover that it works and you've got your foot on the gas like that, the, the hard part of that is liking it a little bit too much and then experiencing that agency and saying, wow, well, if I just work a little bit longer, you know, I, I will get it perfect. If I just work a little bit longer, I'm going to be able to launch this thing or do this thing. And all of a sudden, everything is just on the table for you and you can do any of it. And that's when you need to learn how to pull back because you it's not sustainable and mm -hmm. you absolutely will crash and burn to use another metaphor that goes <laughs> along with the ice road truckers. Yes, yes. You have to, um, yes. Brakes and gas go hand in hand, don't they? Yes. You usually don't have a car with just one or the other. The car doesn't work that way. Well, I guess if you, you know, if you keep a foot on each brake and the gas, you can kind of like, you know, go back and forth. I think people actually drive like that, as scary as that sounds. Oh yeah, I couldn't like do have that. both feet on one pedal. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're supposed to drive that way. So another thing that just floored me, this book was very, um, it revealed quite a bit about yourself that I didn't know. I said honest was one of my words. <laughs> yeah. So I just about fell off the couch when I read this part. As far as you going to a retreat in Vermont. Yeah. And you know, I'm from New York State, so I know Vermont oh, quite well. So I was like, who are you and what have you done with Ashley? <laughs> it's like, I have so many questions, Ash. I know. It was the most woo-woo thing I've ever done. Exactly. That's why I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so whatever possessed you to go in the first place? 
Yeah, well, it, I mean, I, I did. I went to this woman's wellness retreat for an entire month. A whole month? A whole month because I needed to take myself out. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to be benched. Uh, and there's nobody that's going to do that for you unless you do it for you. I knew I needed to take myself out of the game. And the impetus for that was really just seeing my partner who was such – he's such an awesome guy. I mean, to this day, thank God it worked out later. But in that moment – we were in Philadelphia. He's Costa Rican. We were living in Costa Rica, but we were traveling in, around in the United States. And I was miserable and I was bitchy. And the entire time that we were traveling around, I was basically locking myself in the apartment, working all day, nonstop, hunched over my computer. Like the shades were drawn. I didn't care about anything else. I was ordering takeout. I was so focused. I had my foot on the gas the entire time. And he was just kind of like looking around what to do. He would try to invent things to do. This is his <laughs> vacation, right? You know, and, and he would like go play basketball for as long as he could. And then <laughs> come back. He would like be just dying to run an errand. And uh, I was just so snippy with him because I was annoyed that he was even bothering me with such a thing. Like, just don't even ask me what errand you need me to run. And I was I was cruel. I and I saw a different side of myself that I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I mean, I'm pretty happy go lucky in general. Yeah, yeah. I was not, and that was going on for at least a month there. Yeah. And one day, it kind of came to a head where he quietly came to me and he said, uh, "You know, uh, this isn't working for me. I want to go back to Costa Rica." And I said, "Fine, buy a plane ticket." And he said, "I already did." Hmm. You know, it was weird. I took him to the airport the next morning and I, you know, I I saw him off in this very like, whatever, like kind of fashion, like you go back to Costa Rica, like you're the dummy, not me. And then when he left, I, I just, I lost it. I ended up on the phone with him when he was back in Costa Rica and I was still in Philadelphia bawling my eyes out all night long. And I mean until like six o'clock in the morning kind of a thing mm-hmm. all night long. And this speaks to his character, even though he really was kind of like done with me. He really just didn't want anything else to do with me at that point. He stayed on the phone with me all night long. And I mean, just let me cry. And he just was very apologetic, but it's just not going to work. I don't feel good in this relationship anymore because I was really awful. I was belittling him. I was a shit. Yeah. But something clicked with me that night, and I realized that, well, maybe it was a little bit of like, this guy's breaking up with me? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, that doesn't happen. So there's a little bit of that in there. (laughs) I just, I had a moment, and I was like, God, he's right. I've gained weight. I am disgusting. I don't, my back hurts. I haven't left the house. Like, this is not what I started my business for. I started my business for freedom, and so I could travel and enjoy life. Mm-hmm. Not so I could be doing the absolute worst, way worse than any corporate job was that I had ever worked. And so I decided to take myself out. And I looked up Vermont. I don't know how it happened. I looked up some kind of – I wasn't going to go to a, a yoga retreat. Like, <laughs> let's get that clear. I you have your that. limits. <laughs> and I ended up finding this place. It was in Vermont. And I just – I signed up for a month. And every morning I would get up. And I would go have breakfast with all these other women that I was terrified of at first. Like, it's an uncomfortable thing to do. Like, you feel like a giant weirdo, you know. And so I was very scared and nervous. 
it ended up being the best thing I ever did. Gosh, I just got so much clarity from that. I, I got back to myself again. I could, I remembered who I was. I got off the goddamn computer. Mm-hmm. Best thing that ever happened. And I would love to go back. I'm going to go back and visit someday. So what was the hardest part for you besides getting out of the car? <laughs> oh. Because you made rules for yourself, right? I did. Yeah, I did. I had to make rules for myself because otherwise I'd, I wasn't going to waste all the money I had just spent. One of the rules was I had to go outside every day for several hours a day. Uh, another rule was no alcohol, which was easy because they didn't have alcohol there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't stow any away, huh? They checked your bag. I mean, I, I, you know, I left a couple of times and I went and shot pool down at this random little fun place. They had a couple pool tournaments and I entered and I was like, hey, boys, that was fun. <laughs> you know, just a couple times. Got to hustle it, somewhere. <laughs> you can, uh, what was that saying? You can take the girl out of the hustle, but you can't take the hustle out of the girl. Yes, yeah, true. That's what happened. I, you know. <laughs> I mean, I was there for the whole month, so I had to get some kind of outside social interaction at some point. Uh, I told myself another rule was I was going to let myself be uninteresting. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably was one of the hardest challenges is because so often with the ambition piece, you are constantly trying for better and you're trying to be something great and you're constantly trying to outdo yourself all the time. And keep your foot on that pedal. But I questioned whether or not some of the things I was doing were for me and things I wanted to be doing or things because they looked good mm-hmm. and they, they were fascinating to everyone else and they were interesting and they made me cool. I'm just going to let myself be a boring person this month and this is going to be fine. And it was awesome. I was, it was the best thing I ever did. <laughs> you were best I, at boring, huh? Oh, it was so... It was so nice and being able to really go and have conversations with the other women and have enough time and headspace to really listen to what they were saying without feeling like I had to be somewhere else doing something else, remembering something else constantly, constantly, constantly. Right. It's exhausting and you will exhaust yourself out of life. I mean, Well, when you feel like you have to be like 10 steps ahead all the time, you know. Yes. Well, that's great. I mean, that takes a lot of courage to do. It really did. It was weirdly amount of all the things I've done that was in my life, publishing books and doing all this other stuff, speaking. uh, That was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah. Just allowing myself to to soften. Yeah. So it was difficult for me to shift from, you know, kind of shift gears from reading how to kick ass and getting clients and going for what you want to reading about your mom. Oh, yeah. Uh, how was it for you to write that chapter in your life and being so raw and vulnerable in the midst of everything else? The post-it note chapter? Yeah. You know, that was one of the first things I ever wrote, actually, because when you're sitting down to write a book, you have to really think about what the beginning is and where the beginning, where did it start? And I, I really do think that that was the beginning for me growing up in this rural trailer park in Pennsylvania and having this mom who had a severe social anxiety. uh, She really didn't leave the house often. We were on government assistance and that was it. That was my family. I didn't have anybody else. So one of the things was for me is that I never really saw work being modeled. I never really saw what it looked like to do work you were proud of. Mm-hmm. or or what it even meant to be living a good life because I know she wasn't happy with hers. 
And I, I didn't know what any of that meant. So I think that the day that she died was the day that I, I started off on my own little personal mission to figure out the answers to those questions. So in a way it was, it was hard to write because it's just, gosh, it's heartbreaking when you think about it. But at the same time, it was the easiest thing I ever wrote because it was one of the truest things that I knew. A lot of the other things you have to, you know, think through, is this my philosophy? Do I believe this? Would I advise this to other people? But that was something I absolutely knew to be true for my experience and my life and everything I felt about it was absolutely true. So it was actually quite easy to write. When my dad died when I was 14, I stood up and I gave his eulogy and I did not cry. I mean, I was very practiced at being stoic and not creating any conditions where someone could possibly feel sorry for me. Right, right. So for me, the act of crying was an invitation for pity, and I did not want that. So I was very good at not crying. Well, there's an excerpt in the book um, that I wanted to read that kind of goes along this line of, um, you write, you would suppose that a parentless stray who didn't have to answer to anyone anymore might find it easy to fly in the face of convention and become a card-carrying, fearless warrior. But instead, the opposite was much more regrettably true. I desperately wanted to shrink and shrink and shrink until I was as ordinary as air. True story. So what kept you from becoming that reckless rebel who was fearless? Well, I think later I did. <laughs> Later when I'm sleeping in a Kmart parking lot just saying screw it to everything and everyone. Uh, but at first I, I thought that I still had a shot at conventional success. And that was still my main mission was to get out of the trailer park and figure out how normal people live their lives. I really just wanted some lemon pepper chicken and some bagels with cream cheese. <laughs> really, I don't know why. I just Those things registered with me as something that middle class people ate. <laughs> Uh, and I, I was very determined to get that. And I knew that rebelling was also going to be just another another invitation for pity and, and kind of very obvious, like too obvious on its face of why this girl's rebelling and she needs attention. And I did not want to draw attention to myself. I wanted to be normal. I didn't want anyone to look at me differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had always experienced this kind of shame about our financial poverty my entire life. But now I recognize this sense of emotional poverty. And I did not want anyone to think less of me or feel bad for me. So I left town immediately. I knew that the people in my town, they knew, you know, they knew everyone knew that my mom had died and I was sell our trailer. And I, I couldn't help but feel like anytime I would run into anyone I went to school with, they're secretly thinking behind their head, like, is she okay or is she going to crack? Is she cracking? Is, you know, like Right. Yeah, they're just waiting for that. Yeah, and I'm, I know that that was absolutely inside my own head. Everyone there was wonderful and very supportive of me. I could have gone to anyone's house. and I mean, goodness gracious, like that was absolutely a fabrication of my imagination. But nevertheless, it was real for me. So I still went to Philadelphia and I tried to do everything right to become a normal person who didn't make too many bad decisions in her life. And, um, <laughs> and look at you now. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that was really, that was why I didn't rebel. It was just a matter of not messing up because I knew that if I messed up, I didn't have any fallback plan. Right. 
So when you mentioned the saying, break the glass in case of emergency, what exactly does that mean? And does it include vodka? (laughs) Break the vodka bottle in case of emergency. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you read the book, you'll go on to understand, you know, what that journey led to and what the things I learned were, including the fact that normal was the most disappointing thing that ever happened to me and kind of what happens next and how I start to rebel and the decisions I made that ended up leading me to this very unconventional career and and the good things in life. But in between there, at some point, uh, you know, things things got worse and they got pretty bad. And I think a lot of us can relate to that when you find yourself in that oh shit moment and you've made some mistakes. And I think that oftentimes a lot of the advice that's dispensed is well-meaning, but it's also really fluffy and it's like, be the change you wish to see in the world, you know, (laughs) that kind of stuff. But that's not very practical for these moments that I call the break glass in case of emergency moment Mm -hmm. when you, you need a solution now. So for me, when I got to that point of desperation, um, break glass in case of emergency now means figuring out how to take one thing, one thing that you got up your sleeve in your pocket, one talent, one piece of knowledge, something you know how to do, and turning around and selling it to somebody. That is the only thing you need to do to survive at any given moment. You don't need a website. You don't need anything fancy. All you need is another person who has more money than you do, who is willing to give you that in exchange for the value that you can provide. Whatever one one thing it is, that's all you need. And use that and break glass in case of emergency. To use that and get yourself out so you can then get to a place where you can make a better decision moving forward. So is this where the hot dog theory of money comes in? <laughs> and why a flipping hot dog, Ash? Can you pick sexual, like a burrito yeah. or something or a taco? or? Well, no, A, because hot dogs are hysterical. And B, <laughs> they, they <laughs> simplify the act of taking money. And, and women are so mind-fucked around the topic of money. Yeah. No matter what. So that is, you know, they are related because, right, that's the thing. You have a skill. I don't care whether you know how to mow a lawn. I don't care if you know how to do your makeup, whatever it is. You know something. And you know something better than someone else knows how to do. And so if that's the case, you can sell it to people because that's how the marketplace works. All we are all doing every single day is helping other people do stuff. That's it. That's how money gets circulated. But still, then there's that imposter syndrome. And then you stand there and you go, well, I mean, I'm not a professional makeup artist. So can I sell this to someone? Can I teach someone how to put on their lipstick? Yes, you absolutely can. Uh, but it's it's the piece of learning how to say to someone, hey, here's how I can help you. Uh, here's what it costs. Do you want my help? Yeah. It's as simple as that. The hot dog theory of money comes into play when you still feel nervous about asking someone for money and not doing everything for free because – Which I'm sure you, you've never experienced. Uh, man, we've all been there, <laughs> right? We've all been there like, you know, trying to build your portfolio. People that say they're they're trying to get experience to build their portfolio are full of shit. They're just terrified. Right. Terrified to take someone's money because they don't think they're good enough yet. Um. But when you think about it from a hot dog's perspective, (laughs) (laughs) 
So be one with the hot dog. <laughs> Become the hot dog. <laughs> yes. Be one. <laughs> I'm telling you, though, you're never going to forget it because now it's it's like funny. Like the hot dog theory of money is a ridiculous concept. But if you were a hot dog vendor on the Jersey Shore and if a customer came up to you and said, hey, man, I want to buy a hot dog. How much is a hot dog? You are not going to be like, oh, my God, should I offer it to them for free? Uh, should I give them a discount? You're not going to start blurting things out like, oh, you know, it costs $1.75, but for you, I could do it for a dollar. Like, you're not going to start saying those exactly. things immediately. <laughs> be right. Because a hot dog is a hot dog, and a hot dog costs a hot dog costs for a reason and that includes all the things about manufacturing hot dogs and slaughtering animals and, right. <laughs> and the labor yeah squeezing labor. it through that little tube thing into the sheath of whatever it's made of and yeah and if you bought a hot dog you know for 25 cents we all understand the only way you're going to make a profit is if you add a profit margin onto the hot dog that just it has to be that way. Otherwise, why are you standing there at the hot, you know, selling hot dogs if you're going to buy it for 25 cents and sell it for 25 cents? We all understand the math. That's not going to get you anywhere. When it comes to our own services and our own value that we bring, we don't think of it that way. We try to just like give people our stuff for any reason we can. Uh, but just like the the hot dog costs what a hot dog costs for a reason, so do you. And you need to build in all of those things. And every single thing about you is valuable from a different perspective. I mean, the energy you bring to an interaction, the way you make your clients feel, it's all val very valuable. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, so is the profit margin. <laughs> um, unless you're planning on starting the next Make-A-Wish Foundation, you need to consider <laughs> profit. <laughs> And uh, it really is just a – It's a, a price is a factual little declaration. It's a sticker and that's all it is and that's all you need to think about it. There's no negotiation necessary. Hey, here's how I can help you. Here's how much it costs. Do you want my help? It's straightforward. It doesn't need to be such a mind fuck. Well, and I think it's like we don't want to get rejected. We really want to help these people, you know, and it's always like, you know, the whole budget. It's like when someone asks what your services are and you're like, well, what's in your budget? It's like, yeah, oh. you don't really want to ask that question either because then they're going to be like, <laughs> what, $2? I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, again, with the hot dog, it's like, listen, if you are selling the hot dog to someone – and no one wants the hot dog. If they come, they're like, eh, maybe later. I'm not going to get the hot dog right now. You're not going to be like, oh, my God, something is wrong with the hot dog. Right. <laughs> or something's wrong with me, you know. Right. Like, you don't jump to those conclusions. You're like, wow, like, they're vegan. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. They, they, they don't want your hot dog today. That's fine. But no one gets their panties in a wad about it. Right. It's fine. They don't want the hot dog. But you don't automatically start like dissecting the hot dog, opening it up, be like, something is really wrong here. I mean, just, uh, it's just, it's factual, straightforward. Your book had a lot of nuggets for sure. And one that stood out for me was as a woman, you must be brave enough to cause problems. What does that mean exactly? Mm, nuggets, chicken. Mm. <laughs> We've gone down a, a rabbit hole, Kath. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I think a lot of times we make decisions because we don't want to cause conflict for other people. We don't want to say to our husband, you know, this is the thing I want to do. I know that you have res- you know, reservations about it, but this is what I want to do. We don't want to cause problems with that, and we don't want to cause problems for ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to have to th- think about money a little bit more and tighten our purse strings, and we don't want to have to sleep in a Kmart parking lot, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But I do think that sometimes it's necessary because a woman who isn't – brave enough to cause problems is a woman who doesn't trust herself to handle what happens next. And that's what it's all about. Understanding that no matter what happens next, you're going to figure it out. You will, you always figure stuff out. All of us, if you're still sitting here breathing, you've figured it out along the way. Like you keep figuring it out every single day. Nothing is going to change about that. And no matter what decision you make, uh, whether it's good, it's bad. I mean, indifferent, you're still going to keep figuring it out. So trust that you will and be brave enough to cause problems because you will always find answers. Amen. Preach Amen. it. Yeah. I mean, right? Like you have done this so many times. I know anybody who's attracted to the book, The Middle Finger Project, it's because they're a little fucked up inside. <laughs> I mean, all of us are. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, that's just like, you know, 99.9% of the population. Yeah, we've all been through the hard. We've all been through some terrible stuff, and we have all figured it out every single day. Yeah, I mean, you're so much stronger than you think. So as far as steps to become an unfuckwithable woman, what are like the top three? Step one, buy the middle finger project. <laughs> of course, that's obvious. <laughs> uh, gosh, I think I think you need to really consider what it is that you want. Stop chasing things that you don't necessarily want but think you should want or that somebody else wants for you. Really understand what do you want, man? And if you don't know what you want, then it's time to start figuring that out. That's step two. Like what – so what – if you do know what you want, great. If you don't know what you want, well, how can we go about that? You need to start living. I really think that people who are suffering inside and going like, I just don't have any passions. It's not because you don't have any passions. It's because you don't have enough life experience. Straightforward. And there's maybe many reasons why. I mean, it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you've been taking care of small children at home. It's because you had something bad happen to you and you've been kind of like, you know, just kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe you've been working this job. You haven't had time, but now is the time to figure it out. And then step three, I I think the best words that were ever given to me are Seth Godin. He told me, go, go, go. And there's something really powerful about those three stupid little words. Mm-hmm. Because every time I read them, I just, I, okay, I mean, take the steps that you know have to happen without judging every step along the way. Like without judging yourself, without deciding, you know. Stop thinking about whether or not it's right or it's wrong or it's perfect or it's not or if it's going to work out. I mean, just just stop all of that and just say, okay, so I want to start a website. What things need to happen? Write down the action steps and then take the steps every day and forget about what you think about them. Stop thinking about it. <laughs> just take the steps. And next thing you know, you're going to have a website. And then, and then you can decide. Once you look at it and see how it functions, then you can decide what you think about it. But until you get to that point, just do the work. Ash's book is called The Middle Finger Project, Trash Your Imposter Syndrome and Live the Unfuckwithable Life You Deserve and just follow those steps. It's all. Woo! It's easy. Woo! 
I mean, it's never going to be easy, but it is simple. <laughs> it is simple. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you, Kath. You're the best. Thank it's you, Ash. Connecting with you. Yay! Once so I come out, awesome. Out west, I'm going to hunt you down again. I'm like, so, like, can I stay another week at your house? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I figured it would come back around eventually. Yeah, yeah. I owe you a week in Philly anytime. Anytime you want to take me up on that, you are more than welcome. <laughs> All right. I'll definitely take you up on that. Woo! Well, thank you, Ashley Ambergé, and thank you for listening to Women Who Sarcast. Yes, we sarcast like, whoa. Show music provided by Mike Imbassiani. You can find him at mikeimbassiani.com. Thank you.